Welcome to Collier's Talks, a podcast series featuring the latest trends, insights, research, and developments in commercial real estate in Canada and beyond. Welcome, John, to Collier's Talks. Great to be here. Meant to be an informal conversation about what's happening in the industry for our wider audience there from Toronto, Canada today. And I certainly appreciate uh, your time. And we're really looking forward to some insightful comments, not to put too much pressure on you, but really deep thoughts and a wow factor. Um, a little bit about me, my name's Scott Addison. Uh, for many, many years, I was the president of Brokerage Canada and came up through as an industrial and uh, commercial broker. And uh, 35 years at Collier's, most recently as of March 31st of last year, joined our uh, recently formed strategy consulting group. So trying a new phase in uh, my career, exciting phase working with developers and helping people do placemaking, et cetera. So, uh, but really what we're here to talk about today is industry icon, John Love, 45 years plus in the industry, uh, managing really other people's monies, pension funds, wealthy individuals, making sure they're buying the right investments all across Canada has tremendous insight and everybody who knows John and you're widely known knows that you're willing to share it. You have strong uh, points of view and well thought of points of view. And we'd love to hear some of those today. I'm happy to join you today. You know, some of the accomplishments of John uh, last uh, since 2002, uh, CEO and founder of Kingset Capital, tremendously successful. But before that, 20 years as president and CEO, maybe not all 20, but at Oxford Development. So two huge names, tremendously successful, trusted with other people's money. Order of Canada. Uh, you were just recently, IB Business School, give you the Businessman of the Year. Done a tremendous amount of charitable work as well too, which you should be really proud of. And voice uh, strong opinions on where the community should go and there's solution oriented. So thank you for your time and let's get into it. Speaking of charities, I heard you repelled off 700 University um, recently. How was that experience? And, and why, did you, why did you throw yourself off a deal? So it was a very, actually, it was, it was a very cool high energy event. So for Kingset's 20th anniversary, which was uh, in 2022, uh, we wanted to do something that was both high energy and also high impact. Um, MS is a disease that uh, has affected our family and has been something that our families put a lot of energy into. So we created an event called the uh, MS Tower Challenge, which is repelling off 700 University um, uh, to raise money for MS. And this speaks a lot about the real estate industry generally. So it was kind of a high risk adventure to sort of map this out and, and underwrite it, which Kingset did. Uh, but then we had to get people to do it. Um, and what was most remarkable is we had 160 repellers, not all go up the elevator, not one came down the elevator. Everybody did it. Uh, and through the support of the broader real estate community, we raised $5 million for MS research oh, over a three day yeah. event. Yeah. And you know, everybody that I approached and called, including Collier's, thank you. Uh, and said, you know, uh, we're doing this event I'd be grateful if you could sponsor, participate and sponsor. Or, or either. Um, and I was really heartened by the universal positive response we got from the industry. And, and that was the key to raising $5 million, which in, in one event hadn't been done before. A first year event too. 
Uh, well, it's a one and done, right? Yeah. So, uh, but it was, it, was, it was super cool. It was high energy. I went off the wall three times. My wife was the one who really uh, loved it because she's a bit more of a thrill seeker than I am. But uh, anyway, it was... Yeah. Uh, the it, first step over the top of a building must just be heart-stopping. Yeah, it turns out that's an issue. But um, as you go down, it gets worse because uh, as soon as you get down at all, you see in the glass of the, the 700 University yeah. Hydro Building, um, the whole world behind you, right. which is semi-unnerving. But you um, start realizing how high off the ground you are when you right. can see, yes. Yeah, the worst time is when I, and it's two in a time, the worst time is the third time I did it um, uh, with, uh, with someone else. And I had a YouTube camera on my helmet and I was told to stay a little bit above them so I could look down and, you, you know, uh, film them. Well, of course, every time you look over and look down, you go, that's imperfect. Let's go. Let's go. Anyway, it was um, uh, a great testament to the relationships uh, and the support of the industry. We have a remarkable community uh, of interest uh, and that we were able to raise a five million. Oh, congratulations. And that's just one of the charitable things you've done. I imagine the ask on that was, will you go off a building with me? If not, could you please write a check? So the easy way was to write a check. Uh, yeah, but, but I mean, it was, it was okay. Like it was, it was, raising money turns out is something I've done before. So um, it was, uh, I was very, very pleased with the tremendous response from the broader industry. And thank you to Colliers. Well, thank you for both your sponsorship. For that and taking the initiative and showing strong leadership yeah. in that. And, and that's something we talked about earlier is leadership. And you've got some strong thoughts on, on leadership and what's needed in leadership to make Canada, a better place, Toronto, the cities we all live in, um, better places. So maybe you could give a bit some thoughts on that. Well, just to begin with, you know, leadership in good times is one set of facts. Leadership in times of adversity, actually, it takes quite a pivot. Um, you know, people are, uh, are anxious people and, and most young people, i.e. almost everyone has never been through a difficult economic environment. Um, and so facing ad adversity requires different skills, different focus, different level of communication, transparency, uh, authenticity, and it, it requires leaders to really lean in um, and, and communicate with people openly, clearly, transparently, but also to make sure you have a goal and uh, you have a plan uh, and, and uh, can inspire people around that. We talked about, uh, before the tendency during a crisis or during hard times is to criticize and complain. And we certainly see uh, a lot of that in, in hard times. And you talked about the importance of being a leader and stepping forward and, and uh, driving true solutions for that. So when you look at Toronto, or the cities across Canada, where do you see solution based? How, how do we improve our cities? So, you know, I mean, one of the challenges in the narrative generally is, is people are quick to complain and slow to offer solutions. Um, and I think that business leaders uh, have to participate in the narrative by, by identifying challenges, but also identifying potential solutions. Um, because in the absence of offering solutions uh, that, you know, it's, it, can, it can be just a complaining session. Uh, I also think it's in, incumbent upon leaders uh, to be vocal with their employees, their communities, their friends, families, et cetera, because business too often is, mu is muted in the public domain, doesn't want to offend anybody or doesn't want to speak out on an issue. And, and you know, government, labor, you know, uh, make their views or policies well-known and business sometimes can do itself a disservice by being mute. And, 
you know, I, I mean, for one, uh, when I get, when, you know, and you find the same thing when you're in a business lunch or something and people are complaining about an issue, my first reaction is, is what do you think is the solution and who have you told? Um, because in the absence of that, uh, you know, we live with what we live with. The mayoralty campaign going on now, I mean, I've been quite vocal on four things that I, I feel strongly about, um, which is public safety, um, homelessness to have some relations, gridlock, and, and uh, then the housing crisis. And, and I think uh, what I've tried to do publicly is advocate that those are four important issues. And, and generally, they're in the, I'm delighted, that's what people are talking about. Level of government in many ways is your local government is where you live every day in the city or town you live in, and those councillors and the mayor have the most direct effect upon police and fire departments and and the services you get on a daily basis. But the level of participation in a municipal election is typically dramatically the low, by far the lowest. Have you, have you put some thought to that? How how, how do we improve that? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think there's one simple answer, but part of the problem is the municipal election process is very complicated. Um, if you think of federal and provincial, um, you have a candidate who you may or may not know. They're associated with a party who you may or may not be affiliated with. And they, of course, have a leader who is getting, getting lots of publicity. In a municipal election, uh, you have a, a series of individuals who you may or may not know. It's difficult to understand their platform differences. Um, and you end up being asked to make decisions like on a public school board trustee where it's almost, it's, it's so complicated. You know, the Vancouver election uh, last fall was interesting because um, as versus party affiliation, uh, they advocated for platform affiliation. And the winning platform was called the ABC platform. And it, it stood for a few things that resonated with a lot of people. And basically every candidate that ran on ABC won. Um, and I, I think that's quite an interesting model. So um, here, you know, obviously we've got the Toronto's mayor campaign coming up. There's 102 candidates. The ballot looks like the phone book. Um, and it, it is, it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult to sort of drill in and say of those 102, who are the top one, two, three, four, five, and amongst those uh, who have a platform and specifics that might align with you know what I think are my interests. Right. Um, if you think it federally or provincially, um, you you probably identify with a leader that you like or, or dislike. You probably identify with a party you like or dislike. But municipally, it it you're sort of left to your own devices, which I think is is why the municipal turnout is lower. This campaign, uh, which is high profile, but it's only one candidate or at least one role, I should say, 100 candidates. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the turnout is. And uh, like, I'm hopeful that uh, we can get a better turnout because democracy only works when, when people are both educated and engaged. It's so important for our landlord community and our investor community to have a strong infrastructure, have a city that's running right, and have a, a vibrant uh, downtown core. The reality for, for our business is kind of true for every business, which is, you know, we are, <clears throat> we are, uh, either emboldened or discouraged by the, the political environment around us. It starts at a federal level, goes to a provincial level, and of course, uh, tactically to a municipal level. Uh, all three are important because all three set a tone, um, that either, uh, encourages 
you know, job creation and business vitality and the ability for businesses to participate in an inclusive community um, or, or, or not. So, um, and, and as we look to this mayoral campaign, um, you know, we are hopeful that it can get enough profile that, um, that people will um, both educate themselves on the issues and what the leading candidates stand for, uh, and hopefully we can get some good engagement. Excellent. It's a great segue to getting into what we're probably really here to talk about, which is commercial real estate across Canada. And when you look across Canada uh, as what's happening, where do you see the market going in? Let's start with challenges. Where do you see the challenges over the next 18 months or two years for the Canadian commercial real estate market? So I'm going to flip it around if I might okay. and just say, you know, let's start, let's start with what is the opportunity. You know, Canada has some phenomenal tailwinds going for it. Uh, the most dramatic of which is population growth, which is largely driven by uh, new Canadians immigration. Um, but Canada's got the highest population growth in the OECD and more people need more everything, places to live, work, shop, and recreate. And that is a, a, a very strong demand driver in every form of real estate. So that's a, a very constructive backdrop. Uh, then, then you go to, uh, on, in the high density markets, principally Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, um, you've got relatively restrictive, not relatively, you've got restrictive land use guidelines, which limits supply. So you've got population growth, driving demand, land use guidelines, constricting supply. Uh, and as anyone who's been through business 101 knows when demand exceeds supply, uh, you know, it's a constructive environment. So, so that's the broad narrative. The, as you look at the asset classes, obviously multifamily residential housing has all is, is over, is overbid and lots of good stories there all works. Uh, industrial has been very strong and largely industrial has been so strong because we're out of land and, uh, and as, as ridiculous to people who don't live in Canada, um, think that sounds, the reality is we're out of land and therefore uh, the limited amount of space uh, is is being used up and, and industrial has been strong. And I think it's important to know when you say it's out of land, that's out of land, that's service ready to go where you can put a building on within a reasonable amount of time. It's, it's, all, it's all about the permission matrix, uh, where you have permission to do something. And, uh, you know, so the, the, the fact is that while there is land, you don't have permission to use it for what might be its highest and best use. Um, as we go to retail, um, it's an interesting soundbite. Retail's been in the, in the kennel for a number of years, e-commerce and so on and so forth. But they were out mall retail, but the reality is we haven't built a mall in 20 years. We haven't built a mall in 20 years. And, and the population has grown by almost a quarter in 20 years. Well, again, I go back to supply and demand. So today, malls in Canada, the better malls, the top 35 malls are essentially full. Yeah. Uh, and they're full because they've got customers, they've got people, foot traffic. Um, and you know, they're, the, the retailers are, uh, doing well, expanding and have limited options on where to grow. So retail is, a, is a very solid story. And then you come to office. So office we're bombarded by us news. Um, so much so that, <laughs> Um, those headlines are very unsettling for many people. But the facts on the ground are quite different in Canada and the U.S. So in Canada, 
you know, well-located office in uh, super core transit-oriented locations in the high-density markets will, in my view, do fine. Um, and it's not the return to office that gives me any anxiety. Hmm. It's actually the change in demand from the technology sector. Because remember, up till two years ago, technology was the technology companies were gobbling up everything. Absolutely. Then we have the tech rack. Um, and so technology companies are in retreat. And, and that's the biggest change in demand. Return to office, it'll sort itself out. Um, Canada is trailing the rest of the world, largely because we have a less competitive uh, economy. Um, but here too, you know, businesses, CEOs, they want their people back. They want the connection, the creativity, the culture, the productivity. Um, and it's three days a week or it's four days a week or, you know, wh whatever it is. I mean, I think where the model will evolve is a Monday to Thursday in-office environment and with Friday being work from anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, whether people use office space four days out of seven or five days out of seven, it's the same space. Because, because you know, business wants their people all together at the same time because they want that connection, that productivity, that creativity. And so the demand for office doesn't change. And look, the fun of coming into the office and the social uh, ability of, of meeting people. And I have a young daughter who, who's uh, looking at a, uh, a job change. And one of the companies that has offered her is work from home. And she says, oh, dad, I don't want to do that. Well, for, for young people, young people are the most disadvantaged because right. they haven't built their toolkit. They haven't got their relationships. And remember, relationships are the currency of business. And you can't build, develop, and nurture those relationships online. Um, because we, we, we totally noticed you've got an 11 o'clock Zoom call, and at 10.59, nobody's on. 11, everybody piles in. There's the agenda, and then everybody piles out. <laughs> Whereas if it's in person, you show up a few minutes early, you socialize, you build a relationship, you make a connection, you set up something, for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What are the benefits you see of people together in an office? Well, I mean, I, I can witness just in an instant um, the how an idea starts with one person and builds through the others and the creativity, the connection. Somebody goes over there, somebody shares a piece of information over there, none of which happens online. Absolutely. And it's, it's something overheard sometimes. And, and that person coming in, going, I think I can help on this, which it, wouldn't happen. On and, it's, and it's going to an important meeting. You say to a, a junior person, why don't you come with me? Um, you know, you're right there. Why don't you come with me and you learn something? Exactly. So, um, you know, for, for me personally, you know, and I've been around a long time, um, turns out I have lunch five, five, five days a week. And I always have that lunch with somebody else. And, you know, I will have breakfast every day and have three or four of those with somebody else. And that's how I built a business. And, uh, and I don't really care who I have lunch or breakfast with. I'm not that strategic. Because I find that ideas or energy or creativity can come from all directions. But it only comes, at least for me, like this. Right. And that's, I thought it was so important we meet in person uh, to talk about this. Um, you, you very quickly turned to optimism where you saw positivity in the Canadian I'm going to hold you still. I'm going to go back to my original. But where are your concerns? Well, you know, I, I think that um, at a macro level, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously challenges, uh, in the, um, 
both the fiscal stimulus being applied by the federal government, both in the U.S. and Canada, being countered by the monetary tightness that's being forced on us by the Bank of Canada. Um, and, you know, we have to remember that it was the, the huge fiscal stimulus coming out of COVID, which caused inflation, which caused the Bank of Canada to raise interest rates, which caused other dislocations. Um, and, and, you know, we're managing those effects. Now, I'm optimistic. I, in the perfect world, federal governments on both sides of the border would be withdrawing fiscal stimulus, would be heading towards balanced budgets that would allow the central banks to take their foot off the brake. Um, regrettably, we don't have that set of facts. Um, but I think as I think we probably inflation, I think is is declining. I think interest rates have have plateaued, um, and I think we're heading for a soft landing recession. Soft landing uh, being defined as it'll be a technical recession, but we won't see significant unemployment, which is a hard landing. Um, and so that's a pretty good set of facts. So we start with that uh, overlay. Then, of course, you know, municipally today, Toronto is gridlocked. Um, and, and, and the issues we have today in Toronto, homelessness, uh, you know, uh, the, the gridlock, public safety and so on, are all a result of imperfect public policy decisions. Now, the good news is we can correct all of that with better public policy decisions. But that gives me a level of anxiety because we built a culture in Canada that's really focused on the opposition industrial complex. Any decision any politician wants to make, there's a, there's a well-funded, well-energized group that opposes it. And, and so uh, in many cases, politicians will see, take the easier path of not making a decision, more consultation, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, and that doesn't give the action and, and the constructive steps we could have. You know, I, I go back to the, the macro backdrop of the population growth and saying, not, you know, notwithstanding, uh, you know, I think that we will continue to see a constructive environment. You're starting to see on social media, I'm, I'm digressing, but you're starting to see on social media that, um, you know, we need steps to revitalize downtown Toronto. So I was walking down Young Street yesterday, a Sunday, um, and the streets are full. Like there's people everywhere. Um, and so I'm not sure that is a constructive narrative. Um, but what, what, we, what we do need to do is to enable, you know, to, to really look at barriers to making Toronto more safe, you know, easier to get around, a more constructive place for small business particularly uh, to make a living. You go up Young Street and you see all these small shops that are vacant. It's not for a retail reason. It's because their property taxes have... have gone up three to five times over the last three years, their property taxes. And so these small businesses have lost all their ability to make a living. And uh, it's because the property taxes are crushing. Just squeeze out of, out of the operation. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. you know, we have many of those uh, fine people. They're in, you know, like they're, they're good, hardworking Canadians as tenants. Um, and they were making a living, but then the property taxes went up so much, it took away their entire living. So they have no, no alternative. And, and then there's no services, but you know, downtown Toronto, I agree with you. Downtown Toronto's vibrant. It, it, when I saw recently, I think it was on Facebook this weekend, there was a picture of exhibition stadium and the Jays were actually still playing in, but Sky Dome had been finished construction, not yet for use, but the condos as you, along this core that we can see from this office tower 
was amazing. What's been built in the 35 years since Skydome has been constructed, that's contributed the uh, the vibrancy of downtown Toronto as well. And, and I think if I was looking at the office market, I wouldn't be so worried about downtown Toronto uh, buildings as uh, some suburban buildings that don't have any amenities or transit around them, et cetera. Do you have concerns on uh, Oh, yeah, no, I think it's, it's a super nuanced uh, view. And as I said, I think office, which is a super core transit-oriented office, I think will be fine. Uh, office that is stranded, I think will be more difficult. And, you know, we're seeing things like the IBM campus they had at Steeles, which was is a phenomenal million-square-foot building, but it's on 50 acres, and it just recently trade, traded for industrial land value. Um, you're seeing... You know, the Celestica head office at uh, Don Mills in Eglinton scraped and is now residential. You know, and, and this, this, this will be the path for, for office that, that doesn't have a competitive advantage. The competitive advantage in your office here at Brookfield Place is your 25 steps from Union Station. And uh, that will always drive tenant attraction here because Union Station is the central hub. And there's an excitement and a vibrancy to coming downtown and experiencing that, seeing people. It, right. It is fun, even if you do that day-to-day. -day. Um, as we talk about office, you read a lot in the paper, office, conver uh, office conversions to residential. You are seeing some of that in Calgary happen. Do you see that in other cities or office being converted if it's stranded office or C-class office? Office conversion is super difficult. You need four factors. One is you need a relatively small floor plate to make, to make it work. Second is you need light on four sides because you have to be able to put apartments on four sides. Thirdly, you need to have a super depressed office market so the office building as it is has low value. And then in that location, you also need super attractive residential rents to be able to make the math work. So um, that's actually a pretty tough four sets of factors to put together. The reality is that uh, it's almost as expensive to convert an office building to residential as it is to scrape it and build a new one. Yeah, I, I put a fifth factor, which is uh, local and provincial governments amending building codes and zoning to allow it to happen, which I don't see happening in many Canadian cities, although Calgary's uh, an exception to that. And, well, and they're also throwing government money at Calgary to make it economically yeah, feasible. Yeah, I mean, and, and the city's put up $10,000 a unit yeah. to, to do that. But here in Toronto, the elephant in the room is if you build an apartment building, um, the cost of the apartment building, including land, a third of that cost are taxes. So when, they, when, when your politician says they want affordable housing, just ask them, what are they prepared to do on the taxes? If, if, if the policymakers would say, for rental housing, we'll waive all the taxes on creation, you can cut your rents by a third, well, like that. I, yeah, I think the other factor, too, is just the time value of money, how long it takes to go from idea to reality. Well, I mean, you, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, um, things that did uh, Valhalla, the old tired uh, office buildings that burned through Rathburn at 427 and uh, rebuilt them into beautiful condos. How long did that process take from thought to, to completion? Well, we actually haven't started yet, okay? Uh -huh. uh, because w we've only been at it for four or five years. So, um, but we think we're close. But, but it, is, it is breathtakingly difficult right. because while 
the policymaker might say affordable housing is important. Once you get down to the ground, all of the barriers put in front of you are amazing. Things like parking requirements. And I think, you know, parking is the most expensive part of an apartment building. And there we have a site across from a school on transit. Right. And we're going, well, we want less parking because affordable housing, we, don't, we think a lot of our customers won't have a car. But um, anyway, it, it, the rules and the regs and the time, in addition to the breathtaking tax load, is, is what is frustrating the ability to deliver affordable housing. And if the, if, if the various levels of government, which has to start with municipal leadership, said to build a building, we want to get the tax revenue in its life, but we'll, we'll not do the tax revenue, you know, we'll waive the tax, the development charges, and all these other costs to build it, um, you'd unleash a whole torrent of rental and affordable buildings. It, it's amazing. I've been working on uh, 610 Bay, which is the old uh, transit terminal, the bus terminal in Toronto, uh, with our strategy and consulting group and Collier's Brokerage, uh, working with the Create Toronto. And after all these years of talking about affordable housing, there isn't really a definition as to what affordable housing truly is as well. So we're grappling with that right now. And, and it seems to me we've been talking about affordable housing for a couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, I mean there are, uh, in fairness, there are, there are a few definitions based on, a, on you know, the average monthly rent, right. AMR. But um, the, the, the issue is what's anybody prepared to do about it? And, and the tax load is on the creation of new rental apartments is crippling. It's a third of the cost, which means you have to have a third more rent. Um, and to me, this is a relatively simple narrative. If we want affordable housing, give rental and affordable tax exemptions. Um, and because we've got half a dozen or more sites right now that if we didn't have, if we, if, if taxes on the creation cost weren't there, we'd be fine. And just one last, not to go on, but just one last thing. Rental buildings are the only good or service I'm aware of, which the HST is based on value after you've built it, not the actual cost. And so if you build it, and heaven forbid it's worth more than you paid for it, you've got extra HST. So talk about a disincentive. Anyway, so when, when I hear all the, all the ramblings about the need for affordable housing, I do roll my eyes a little bit. I think that's a, a logical uh, conclusion for somebody in the industry who knows all the facts. It, it, and it must be frustrating. Well, it is because I think, I think some of the, I mean, for sure we don't have enough housing. Let's just start there. Yeah. Um, and we need housing of, of every form. The, you know, the, the, uh, the missing middle uh, is super important. And I was delighted to see Toronto City Council just in the last month approve multiplexes on all R1 zoning sites, which is something, you know, I've talked about for a long time. And, and I'm hopeful that over time that, that that moves the needle. But then you have to read all the small print. And some of the restrictions on what you have to do to get that uh, will, again, delay and frustrate it. So we've talked about solution-based ideas. What's an idea you have where maybe the commercial real estate industry can do a better job of the market? Mm, well, I think, I think the, the industry generally um, has tried to produce, I mean, it depends what asset class you're talking about. I mean, office tends to be amongst the big, uh, the big freight companies, they've delivered great office. They've done so in a way that I think generally proud. The one thing where uh, that the industry is not doing as good a job as they could is on zero carbon. Mm. So we've taken Scotia Plaza to zero carbon. We're taking the Royal York to zero carbon, Royal York Hotel. Um, 
but none of, none of the new buildings in Toronto, office buildings, are zero carbon. And it's amazing, you know, I've seen corporations pledge they're going to be zero carbon by 2030. I think that there is, the, you know, the rhetoric is going to convert itself into action at some point. Um, and, you know, for me, it'll, it'll be super interesting to see what customers actually do when the Royal York is certified zero carbon, which will be this fall. It'll be the only hotel in Canada certified zero carbon. And I'll just put it out there that, you know, once we get certified... The conference is coming to Toronto to talk about climate, sustainability, ESG, and so on. I'll be disappointed if they don't look at the Royal York first. First. That would make sense. So zero carbon, paying attention to that. What is a third of greenhouse gases come from, you know, structures, cities. That's right. And, and it, it does require, it does require um, you know, leadership to make a commitment. And because you have to commit that this is something that you think is important and will be important to the future customer. So when you looked at going zero carbon with those buildings, could you prove that it made economic sense or was that just more of a gut? If we do this and be a leader in this, they will follow. So yeah. Be, well, feel the dreams. You know, it's a bit, of, it's not, it's a, it's a bit of both. I mean, first of all, you have to figure out uh, a methodology on how to make, uh, how, how to, most cost effectively and, and with the customer in mind, how to affect those changes. And it takes a lot of work. Uh, this doesn't happen overnight. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to say to yourself, I think that this will protect my asset because the customer will ultimately value it. I think yeah. you, you can look to, to Europe as being the most advanced. Yeah. Now, it's largely reg, a, regul, a regulatory response, which to me is less scalable than a customer response. Um, what, what we did, when we think of ESG, ESG is a bit overused. Uh, it's sort of like the word modern, you know. Um, so we said, what, what one phrase can we land on that we think our customer can both understand and value? And so that was zero carbon. So that's where we put our stake in the ground. Um, and when the Royal York is zero carbon, there can be no confusion that, you know, that hotel operates without uh, uh, contributing any carbon to the atmosphere. Um, and for some people that will align with their values, some people won't care. Um, and we'll see how that evolves. So interesting, you'd say, you look around the world and you, you learn from other areas. You know, I, I, I think Canada is unique in the world with its ability to actually make a change in the climate. And it's not taking our 1.5% of emissions and making them 1.4 or 1.3, because that's irrelevant. What we could do is take our excess resources, which is a coast-to-coast -coast solution, and disintermediate the burning of coal for energy globally. Now, there's a big idea. Right. So that would be taking from LNG to hydro to uranium, nuclear, um, oil and gas. I mean, every solution and disintermediating coal. So instead, what do we do? Germany comes over, says, I'd like to buy LNG. We say not so much, and they burn coal. So a third today of Germany's energy is burning coal, which um, dwarfs our 1.5 going to 1.4 or whatever that looks like. So <clears throat> I think we're, we're missing the big picture and partially because the Paris Accord only counts what's in your borders. So everybody's looking at their own scorecard and saying, it doesn't matter if what the rest of the world's doing, I just want to be judged on my scorecard. Yeah, if we can be leaders in technology. In well, technology. Air, in clean petroleum, clean... Well, I, I, I mean, LNG compared to coal, there's no argument. 
right? Um, and Lord knows we have uh, lots of excess natural gas. But, you know, we started uh, 15 years ago. We had 15 LNG proposals. Today we have one under construction. Um, we're way ahead the U.S. or Mexico because we're so much closer to Asia. So instead today we find ourselves, there's eight plants operating in, in the U.S. West Coast, and Mexico has now got two or three proposals they're going to go with. Um, we just need to give our people, our industry, permission. They don't need money. They just need permission. It could be a huge growth industry for Canada, people-wise, because we have a highly educated, uh, because of our post-secondary education systems in Canada. We, we've got all sorts of things we can do. Like, we could actually make a difference. Right. We could actually make a difference by disintermediating. Just think of a big idea, disintermediating coal globally by using our excess bounty of resources, which, which no one has the degree of excess resources that we do. Instead, we're hoarding them and counting our number because at Paris, we'll look good. When you look at uh, major cities, we talked about city building and placemaking. Uh, you've got Calgary's announced they're going to uh, finally build a, an NHL stadium. You've got the Ontario line being built in, in Toronto. You've got hospitals and uh, uh, and, and trends being built in Vancouver. Uh, do you have concerns on that? What, uh, do you see that? We have, to, we, 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 we have to change the way we deliver public projects. Um, our public projects, of which there are many announced, um, all go to the lowest bidder, and then there's a fight. So things like the Eglinton Crosstown, 10-year project, we're now in the 12th or 13th year, it's another year or two, they've stopped because they're in court. Um, you know, the Ontario line is actually a four-year project. It's a four-year project. Now they're budgeting 12 years because it's, it's all 35 hours a week. I mean, if we were serious about public transit, if we, if we were serious about public transit, we'd say we need it faster. Um, and our industry, our construction industry, uh, is as good as anywhere in the world. Um, we just need to give them permission and say we need it delivered fast. So let's have two to three shifts seven days a week. Um, and, you, you know, there's a reason that, that other countries are able to deliver these big public projects in short order. is because they give their contractors permission. And so, like... The, the, by the time the Ontario line's done in now scheduled somewhere in, in 32 or 33, um, it won't matter because we'll need another Ontario line. Um, so we need, we need to rethink how we, how we do this. And there's a model. Um, when the province in the middle, midst of COVID said we need a 200-bed uh, urgent care home for seniors, uh, they went to uh, PCL and some others. They built it in 11 months. Why? It's because it was a priority to them, PCL, and all the stakeholders and permission were aligned around only one thing. Right. Let's get it done fast, and they did. So let's, get, let, let's, let's rethink how we deliver these big public projects. Those big public projects, not only were they told to deliver them quickly, they were bonused on often, on delivering them yeah. quicker because you get rid of the congestion and all the other headaches right. that come with the construction that we see all over our major cities in Canada. Um, one final note, anything you wanted to say about the Canadian market, about, you know, I know you're a glass half full, so something positive and we'll... Well, I mean, I'm, I remain positive. One of the great strengths of the Canadian uh, investment business, the real estate business, is the strength of our banks. And, um, you know, we, we live in a world where we take for granted strong financial institutions. And if you look at what's going on right now on the other side of the border... Uh, I have friends and others that are in my line of work, and 
Uh, their business is okay, but their bank's not. And that's putting all sorts of pressure. And a lot of the pressure that you're going to see on the CRE industry over the next uh, short period of time in the U.S. is not the industry. It's their lenders because they're all under dramatic pressure. So um, as much as Canadians love to, have, uh, to hate their banks, it's one of this country's greatest assets, which is why we avoided the debacle of 0809. That's right. I remember that. I remember the meltdown in the U.S. and the worldwide fears and the Canadian banks grew right. and expanded during that period. So uh, I think it's a, a great point. Well, I'd like to thank you for your insights today and joining us at Collier's Talks. Um, great wide audience and uh, well, enjoy the balance of this beautiful sunny Toronto day. Uh, thank you for having me and uh, hope that was what you'd like. Thanks for listening to Collier's Talks podcast. To learn more about Collier's Canada, our experts and our solutions, visit colliers.canada.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.